0: Well, welcome this morning. It's good to have you here with us this morning. Uh, We are uh, diving into our series called Behold Our God, a study of the names of God. And depending on how you slice it, there are hundreds and hundreds of names of God in the Bible. And we'll be covering a lot of them, it looks like, all the way through Christmas. Um, So we will go through the end of the calendar year with the names of God. Of course, there are a lot of good uh, Christmas names. Um, that we'll save for the end, uh, but today we're going to start off um, with four of some four of the most common names of God. Notice that the notes in your worship folder are sparse. There's lots of white space. I know that sends some of you into a little frenzy. There's no blanks. There's just blank. <laughs> um, but this, was a, this is a tough one to, to get into um, and prepare for because it's so broad. It sweeps through all of Scripture, starting with the first few words and ending with the last few words. So I want to sketch out where we're going first, and then we'll back up. So the title is God of Gods and Lord of Lords, and those are the two English names of God that we'll be covering today, God and Lord. And you'll see that um, on the front and back of your notes. Uh, just to summarize ahead of time, the word God, in, our word God in English, in Hebrew is Elohim. You'll see that there on your, on your uh, paper. And then the Greek word is Theos. And so we're just covering the primary name for God in the Old Testament and the primary name for God in the New Testament. And then you'll see on the back, um, Lord. And the, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on, but the primary uh, Hebrew word for Lord is Adonai. And the primary Greek word in the New Testament is kurios. So that's where we're going. We're just going to cover those four names today. Um, Those four names, though, appear in the Bible thousands and thousands of times. So I thought we literally could probably just go like this and stop and... Nope, that's Ruth. But I got close. (laughs) On the page, there um, there are the names of God and they're all, 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 all over the place. In fact, as I studied this week, I ran into some things I did not have any answers for. Um, and in fact, I need to ask some Hebrew guys, because I just could not figure it out with all my resources and looking into some of these things. But this is a vast subject. But as we enter the vast subject, I do want to remind us, I mean, if you didn't, if you were not here last week for Pastor Ron's introduction to the series, you need to go back onto our church website and listen to that. Or if you subscribe on iTunes, you need to listen to last week's message. I think on our church website as well, you can get the notes Um, And that would be really good for you to go back and see what the the foundation for these months of the names of God are about. But we want to know God through this series. Um, We don't want to just know the names of God. By understanding and learning the names of God, we want to know who God is. And then we want to do a problem because some would say that God is unknowable. Um, And so then they throw their hands in the air and kind of give up, which is either ignorant or sloppy. Because um, the Apostle John says in his gospel, and this is, and this is the words of Jesus, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then in the first letter of John, he says this in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So this is what our contention is. To know God, we must know him as He has revealed us, as He has revealed Himself to us. And that is key. Um, if if the God that we're studying, as we begin to look into, it, if, if He is if He is as He claims to be, eternal, immutable, transcendent, if He is holy, then how else would we know about Him unless He revealed Himself to us? So Christianity is primarily a religion of reception. We receive. Um, We receive grace, we receive mercy, and at the core, we receive revelation. We receive revelation of who God is, and the only one who can give that to us is God Himself. Himself. So, if God has revealed himself to us in such a gracious manner, how foolish would we be to not investigate that revelation? To let it sit would be an act of arrogance. And um, many of the guys that I studied this week said that it, the most or, it, or one of the most significant ways that God, revealed, God reveals himself is in his names. He gives us his name. So, Pastor Ron started off last week with, I think, 10 different titles or names that he goes by in various contexts, um, family, church, uh, professional, whatever, known in different ways. And so, um, this holy God reveals himself through his names. And we are going to just dive into this and love this. So, we're, we're on holy ground here. Maybe we should take our shoes off because this is, um, this is somewhat dangerous place to be then there's also much good here. So, uh, one author that I read this week said this, and I want you to chew on this one. God's name is God himself. God's name is God himself. God in his self-revelation. I read that and I was like, wait a second. That's not, that's not true. That's not right. And then I think he convinced me. (laughs) Um... He goes through the scriptures and begins to point out what is said about God is also said about his name in almost every situation. In fact, one of the primary Jewish blessings is Baruch Hashem. The name. Hashem is the name. um, That bless the name. So we praise God and we praise his name. We call out to the Lord and we call on the name of the Lord. God was near and his name was near. You go through and you can see all of these things. So God's names, and especially some of the ones we're going to study today and next week, are some of the primary ways that he reveals himself to us. His name and who he is are so tied together that when we study the name, we study God. And of course, there's going to be overlap between and amongst some of the names. So this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of jump a little bit into next week when Pastor Ron's going to talk about the name Yahweh. And unavoidably, we're going to kind of just bump into some of the other names because there, there's overlap and there's connections and there's compound names and the, um, there's, there's different ways of combining the names to mean different things. So for example, this, this uh, week, I was trying to think of some helpful illustrations to think about... Um, how God's names differ and how they have different emphases. So I thought of um, the illustration that's used in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Romans of the clay. Yeah, the, the potter and the clay, the potter shaping the clay and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Paul, they basically all say, you know, how dare you clay? Talk back to the potter. Why'd you make me this way? Um, and so I thought, well, that would be good for God as creator, as we'll talk about, um, because he's creating the clay. But then I thought, well, we could equally say that for Lord, because the potter is the master of the clay he owns the clay, and so there 's this this overlap of names, and so sometimes it'll be very distinct god's name is very clearly distinct here for a reason, and we see exactly why he he revealed himself this way or exactly why David or Solomon called him this and there's gonna be other times where it's just Not so distinct, and there's not that much of a difference between the names, but sometimes we just pile names upon names to honor God. So there's going to be lots of overlap, lots of repetition. Um, But that's a good thing, right? That's how we learn. We learn by repetition, by things being repeated to us. And so we're going to see that um, in how we study the names of God. So let's dive in. In English, we have a very generic term, probably the most generic term for God, which is God. <laughs> um, it can be used of uh, many gods or false gods. It can be used of one God. Um, it can be used in uh, Christian uh, theology as one God in three persons. And in Hebrew, the name for God is Elohim. Elohim. And the very very first thing we should notice about that is that "em" at the end. Anytime you're um, looking at Hebrew or, look, or reading your Bible, or if you're in Israel with us next year and you see an "em" on the end of something, that's always plural. So the name for God is a plural noun. Um, Elohim, when referring to other gods and false gods, appears just like that. Elohim. Um, it is a plural noun. It, it's 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 kind of hard for us to to grasp that. And, and the name Elohim means something like mighty one or it is related to a word for strength. And so from it, we generally have an understanding that um, the word Elohim, God, is talking about God's authority and specifically his creative power. So turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and we'll see a few of the more than 2,570 times that Elohim is used in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1. First four words. In the beginning, God. (laughs) There it is. Elohim, in the beginning, God. And what is this God doing? He created the heavens and the earth. And if you'll you'll note from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Genesis 2-3, there are 34 verses there. 35 times Elohim is named in those verses. No other name for God appears other than Elohim. Um, it It is making sure that we understand that this God is the creator, He is the only creator. He is the only God. Many of the ancient Near Eastern tales of creation have to do with multiple gods working together or fighting to make the earth, to make mankind. But it is very clear at the very beginning of the biblical story that there is one God creating. And yet that one God has a plural name. And so there's been all kinds of studies and debates done down through the ages about who this God is and how we are to make uh, what we are to make of his plural name. There are places in the Bible where we find God referred to just as El. Um, and that's another word for God that's borrowed probably from the Canaanites and lots of the other um, ancient peoples around Israel had something like Eel or El or Allah. Uh, very similar things to that base root of L, But most of the time, the Bible refers to God as Elohim. And even in the first um, chapters of the Bible, we see um, God speaking in various ways. And one of the ways that God speaks is this one God says, let us. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image. And so immediately, Christians jump to the doctrine of the Trinity, that we believe in one God, revealed in three persons. He exists as three persons. And so that clearly, the us there refers to that. Well, we need to take a step back, and be be careful how quickly we jump into some of those things. But it seems like, um, the fact that God decided to reveal himself as Elohim in Hebrew, um, fits nicely with the fact that later on in history, God slowly reveals Himself. We call it progressive revelation. We find out more and more about God as time goes on through His revelation. We figure out, wait a second, there's a lot more going on here with this God because there's there's this spirit that's mentioned and He's called God. And then this man, Jesus, comes and He's referred to as God and calls himself God and claims Godhood. And so then we need to go back to the beginning and say, interesting, interesting. The way that God slowly reveals himself fits with even the word he used to name himself at the beginning of time. So you'll see Elohim most prominently in books that deal with God as creator or when God deals with other peoples outside of his covenant people, Israel. So books like Ecclesiastes, Elohim is the dominant name used, Daniel, parts of Jonah, and oftentimes in the Psalms, when referring to God as creator, he is Elohim, rather than, as we'll see next week, his personal covenant name, Yahweh. Confused yet? (laughs) It's only going to get better. So, we have this God revealed as Elohim. Sometimes he reveals himself as El, especially when he reveals himself in compound names. we're going to study a lot of those compound names. Uh, El Roy, the God who sees um, lots of compounds to put God with something that he does. And that reveals God to us. There's also a phrase that's used four times in the Old Testament twice in Daniel and it refers to God as the God of gods that that there is that that God that Elohim is is primary he is elevated he is the God of gods and so we think of the song that we learned as children maybe king of kings and lord of lords which is another phrase that's used in the Bible and it's to denote this um, this hierarchy and that this God is at the top Interestingly, in the book of Daniel are two of the four uses of the word God of gods. And one that's spoken by a, a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who calls Daniel's God the God of gods. And the other time in Daniel it's spoken by an angel who refers to God as the God of gods. So in the, in the name Elohim, we are, we are shown and we are, um, it's revealed that God is Creator. So when you think of Elohim, you should think of this powerful, eternal creator God. Primarily, when God is referred to as creator, he is Elohim. That's good for us to remember, because that butts up against much of our, the worldview in our world, in our country, um, that there is no creator. Uh, That Darwinistic evolution is the explanation for everything, and if that is the case and there is no creator, then you are not a creation, you are an accident. And if you are an accident, and you extrapolate that logically, there's not a lot of hope. And we see that running rampant throughout Western civilization. In fact, that is why we need to understand Elohim, we need to understand God as creator. God as creator is the basis for much of the arguments that the Bible will use later on throughout the writings, that God is creator, returns to God as creator. And most of the times that 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 happens, he is Elohim. And that is the God who is revealed to us. In the New Testament, the common word for God is theos, where we get the word theology, study of God. Theos is used more than 1,300 times in the New Testament. And when the Old Testament is quoted in the New, the Greek word to translate Elohim is theos. So the scribes or the authors of Scripture, when they were quoting an Old Testament passage to make a point, and Elohim happened to be in the Hebrew passage, well, they would say theos. And so that is the common generic term for God in the New Testament. So go to Acts 17... And we'll see how the Apostle Paul uses this to his advantage. Because in the Greco-Roman world, there were many gods. There were many gods, and they were all referred to as Theos. At some point or another, there were many gods. So Paul, in Acts 17, verse 22, he gets an opportunity in Athens, the center of the philosophical world, He goes to Mars Hill where all they do is talk philosophy and talk religion and talk ideas. And Paul is given an opportunity to speak. And he begins at the beginning. He tells the people that he saw an altar to an unknown god. Um, There were so many uh, uh, gods and idols in Athens um, that sometimes they said it was easier to find an idol than a man. In the city of Athens, they were just all over the place. And this um, just grated on Paul's spirit. And so when he gets the opportunity to speak, verse 24 of Acts 17, he starts this way. The God, who what? Made the world. He starts with creator God, Theos. In fact, he starts at a common ground because the Greco-Romans would have thought, yes, God or gods created the world. So Paul starts with on common ground. Yeah, God made the world and everything in it, and we'll get, he gets to our second word a little prematurely for us, but being Lord of heaven and earth. And he begins to make this argument for God, and he uses the word theos several times so that they would understand what he was talking about. You'll notice he does not mention the name of Jesus at all in his initial presentation. Verse 27, he refers to God. Verse 29, to God. 30, to God. When he gets the resurrection of the dead in verse 32 and 33, he is summarily mocked and kicked out. But some people begin to be intrigued, and to believe. So in this world where Paul is able to use the word theos and have everybody understand who he's talking about or what he's talking about, he's talking about a transcendent being, um, someone who has some kind of control over human affairs, possibly lives on Mount Olympus or something like that or up in the heavens and can sometimes come down. And so this word is just a generic word for a deity. Um, A god, a goddess would be referred to in this way. And what Paul wants to do is to tell the people that Theos made you. He fashioned you. He crafted you. He designed you. You are created by God. And if you're here this morning, that's true of you as well. You were crafted in your mother's womb. God put you together in in an intimate, personal way way. You are not the result of an accident. God has put you together. Therefore, God has a purpose for you. And not only that, but this Theos, this Elohim, made you in His own image. You bear the reflection of the God who made you. When God makes Adam, when he crafts Adam out of the dust of the earth, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He imparts to Adam something like God himself. So that we are like God in some way. So when the serpent comes to Eve and says, and begins to tempt and says, did God really say And then his temptation is, if you eat the fruit, you'll be like God. And Eve should have said, I already am. But she didn't understand that she was a special creation made by the creator, God. Don't miss this. Because Paul says that one of the primary ways that we leave the proper understanding of who God is, is by trading. We make an exchange That instead of seeing the creator for who he is and worshipping him, we take cheap replacements and we begin worshipping creatures rather than the creator. And and I love to mention this. I mention this all the time. But you can go throughout the Old Testament and see time after time after time where the prophets just mock their own people and the people of the other nations for chopping a tree down and thinking that that's worth worshipping. You chopped the tree down. Why would you worship the tree you cut down? That's foolish. What kind of God is that? And the prophets go on to say, it's the kind of God who doesn't speak, doesn't hear, doesn't see, can't do anything. You know, it, it's, it's, I see, I've seen this in uh, auto shops around the Garden Grove area. You go in to get your car worked on, and there's, there's a God right there, and then there's food presented to the God. And, and I just want to, <laughs> I know that they know this, but I just want to say, that doesn't work it doesn't work, that, 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 I don't even know if it's precious jewelry. Whatever that is made of, bronze or copper or whatever, maybe some gold, that God can't eat that food. That God is limited. In fact, he's non-existent. My God's not. My God made the heavens and the earth. My God does whatever he pleases. And that is a good, good thing to be confident in and to know. And so we move on next to the word Lord. And of course, we've I even heard I think Nathan prayed this this morning, Lord God. We put the two together often. Now, some of us have different um prayer habits or uh words that we say or or, or even formulas that we use when we pray. How many of you think how many of you you address God in your prayers as Lord God pretty frequently? Anybody? Pastor Ron does it all the time, if you notice. He, he does that a lot. How many of you um, refer to God as Father when you pray? Okay. Um, dear Lord? Yeah? Okay. Good. So see how interchangeable we've made this in our vocabulary? Sometimes we don't even realize what we're saying, right? It's just, it's a term or a title that we've just kind of gotten used to saying. Um, and I want us to, to think about that even in relation to the way that we pray. So as we as we come to the word Lord, um, we see two words again, one in Hebrew and one in Greek that are primary. And in the the Old Testament I want to make I want I want you to see the distinction and the difference here. So please turn to Psalm one ten. Psalm one hundred ten. There are many, many, many places we could go to point out this difference. But I want to help you read your Bible better. Um, if you if you haven't picked up a Bible, there should be a black hardcover somewhere in front of you in the chairs. You need it right now. Psalm 110, verse one, and we're going to get just into the nitty gritty, the ink on the page here. Okay, Psalm 110, verse one. The what's that second word? Says to my. Okay, what's the difference between those two words? Look look carefully. Okay, the first Lord is in all caps. Do you see that? Okay, notice that. This is really important. The second Lord is just written normally, right? The L is capitalized and O-R-D is just lowercase. Okay, in Hebrew, those are two different words. Um, and I think that, uh, unfortunately, to some extent, um, we've kind of stunted our understanding of these words in English by putting Lord in Lord. So you read verse one. The Lord says to my Lord. And if you're not paying attention, just read past it. But in the Hebrew, those are two different words, which implies. And Jesus uses this um, in the Gospels to kind of tell the uh, Pharisees to tell the Pharisees who He is as the Son of God, and hinting at the fact that He is God Himself. He uses this very verse. In Hebrew, it says Yahweh says to Adonai. There are two different titles, two different names for God. Now, if you are just hearing the English spoken or read, you have no idea that those are two different words. Um, what What's happened over uh, centuries, perhaps millennia, is that at some point after the, the Bible times, um, that word, LORD, in all caps, is Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God that Pastor Ron will talk about next week, so I don't want to get too much into this, but... Uh, That word, at some point, um, the Jewish people began not to say it. They began to think of it as too holy to pronounce. And so they would replace it, sometimes just by saying Hashem, the name. Or they would replace Yahweh with Adonai, which is just super confusing because (laughs) you're merging words. In fact, um, how many of you have been to Wildwood as a counselor or a camper? Raise your hand. Okay, plenty of you. When we do the Shema, okay? Um, we say Shema, Israel, Adonai Eloheinu. Okay, um, we're saying Adonai because we're doing it the way the Jewish people do it today. But that word in Hebrew is Yahweh. See how we've got? See how it's confused now that it's come over several languages to get to English, and now we read it in our English Bible, and it's Lord and Lord. Those are two different words. So when you're reading your Bible, for, let's just do this. Go to go to Deuteronomy 10. There's another place we have to go. Deuteronomy 10 because here we'll see it played out. Another great place to see this um, is 2 Samuel 7, after David receives um, covenant promises from Yahweh. He refers to um, the, the God that he is talking to as Lord God in two different ways throughout that. And so you see in English, you see the differences. So Deuteronomy 10, 17. For Yahweh... Your Elohim is Elohim of Elohim's and Adonai of Adonai's. Okay, I'm trying to get you to see the difference there. So there's these different names for God. Okay, Yahweh is God of gods and he's Lord of lords. Of course, that's where the title for the message came from. But we we need to read our Bibles better and more intelligently by seeing the difference of these two words. So Adonai is the word for master owner. It's always used of a superior in the Old Testament. It can be used of men. For example, Abraham is his servant's master. So that when Abraham's master goes back to what's now modern day Syria to go look for a wife for Isaac, um, the, the, the servant says, my Adonai, or he says, Adonai, my master sent me. So it is used often of men, but it is used about 300-ish times specifically for God, including in Psalm 110 like we just saw and here in Deuteronomy. It stresses God's ownership of creation. So as where Elohim meant more of this emphasis on creation, more of an emphasis on authority and power... Lord, Adonai, refers more to this ownership idea, okay? This master idea. So Jesus borrows this in the New Testament. We'll get to the New Testament word in a minute. But he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's intentionally going back to the Hebrew Adonai. When used of men, however in the Old Testament is always used in the singular and so once again we see this plural when it is used of God it's used in the plural form so there will be a plural form of God the the pronoun okay will be plural okay but then everything following it will be singular it's not supposed to work that way but it it does because God has decided to use the, the plural word for himself Adon is singular And Adonai is actually plural, and it means my lord or my master. There's a personal component to Adonai that doesn't necessarily crop up in Elohim. So Elohim is God, generic term. Adonai is my lord, my master. There's an implied relationship whenever it is used. So in Psalm 97, verse 5, this is a really uh, good place to see it. Psalm 97, verse 5, you don't have to go there, I'll read it for you. It says, The mountains melt like wax before Yahweh, before the Adonai of all the earth, before the Lord of all the earth. He is the master, he is the owner of all the earth. In Daniel 9, um, Daniel's famous prayer to God, he consistently, sometimes many times in one verse, refers to his God as Adonai, Master. And the, the prayer is perfect because the prayer is a prayer of forgiveness, of repentance. And it's in that mode that Daniel sees himself as a servant, appealing to his Master, his Lord. And so he gets before Adonai, my Lord, and repents and asks for forgiveness for his people. You know, I thought of um, the poem Invictus. I don't know if you, any of you saw that movie either about um, uh, South Africa and apartheid and um, all those things, but throughout that movie, um, the poem of William Henley was quoted, and you've heard it, I'm sure. The famous lines go like this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that's, that's what we want in western civilization we want self autonomy i want to rule myself i want to be able to call the shots i that's what freedom is to us doing whatever i want to do because i can and that is what william henley said i am the master of my fate i am the captain of my soul the problem is he was alive on planet earth and so he knew that wasn't the case because there was a government over him and there are traffic lights and there are policemen and there are his own physical limitations You are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. Go to a graveyard or a cemetery and look at all the masters of their fates. They're in the ground. No, there is a Lord and He is Adonai and He is over all the earth. That is really important for us to see, to remember that God Himself is the Lord. He's the Lord of lords. That phrase, Lord of Lords, appears five times um, in the Bible, three of them in the New Testament actually referring to Jesus as the Lord of Lords. And that takes us to the New Testament where the word for Lord is kurios. So the word in Greek for Lord is kurios, and it very much has the same thing. Um, here's two definitions one who is in charge by virtue of possession, an owner. Or, slight modification, one who is in a position of authority, Lord or Master. And so we see this used in the New Testament primarily of the Lord Jesus. So at times when you're reading the New Testament and you see a reference to God, and you see a reference to Lord, and you see a reference to Holy Spirit, you're seeing a Trinitarian reference because Lord almost always refers to Jesus. Jesus. Pastor Ron will speak about that next week because it's very interesting that sometimes where Yahweh in the Old Testament is carried over into the New Testament in a quote, Jesus will be associated with kurios. And so Jesus is related to as Yahweh himself. William Ramsey said this, Perhaps the most interesting of the messianic titles given to Jesus by the early church is the title Lord. Those today who use it thoughtlessly... Sunday after Sunday, like we probably do, realize hardly realized the original significance of this word. And this is fascinating. Because the most basic statement of faith in the New Testament is this, Jesus is Lord. We study that in 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. That became the, the shortest possible way to identify with the early Christians. The password was, Jesus is Lord. Like, well, that, that doesn't say much. But if we understand the Roman context, and we understand that a password, a key phrase in the Roman Empire was, Caesar is Lord, then we will understand the the magnificence and the significance of saying Jesus is Lord. Because when you say Jesus is Lord in the early church, you are saying Caesar is not. Now that opens up all kinds of, of vistas for us as we begin to go back into the scripture and study it. So for example, when the high priests have Jesus before um, Caesar's representative, Pilate, they say, you're not a friend of Caesar. They appeal to Caesar as Lord, as master. And they say, you're not Caesar's friend. And Pilate is pushed into a corner. He must, he must put Jesus to death. So I did some study on this. And in the time of Paul... And then in the early church, the emperor cult, as it was called, was the fastest growing religion in Paul's world. In fact, in places you may have heard of, like Ephesus and Corinth, and even some of the seven churches of Revelation, they were competing against one another to see who could have the most elaborate worship of the emperor. So they began to see the emperor as divine and it started with Caesar Augustus as he succeeded Julius Caesar. And, and by the way, in, in Greek it's Kaiser um, and that's, that's how you pronounce it in, in, in Greek. When it comes over to English, we soften uh, that syllable. But the Kaiser is kurios, okay? Would be would be Caesar is Lord. And most emperors by the time of Jesus and Paul would shrewdly... The, as the politicians move, they would go, "Oh, hey!" And usually, they would convince someone that they saw the previous Caesar uh, ascend to heaven or something magnificent like a miracle, and they'd say, "Wow, look at that! Well, the the pre the previous Caesar, the one before me, he's now divine. He he's he's a god. So what does that make the new Caesar? He's the son of God, which is also a title used for the Caesars." of the ancient world, which we can't get into now because that's a title for Jesus that we'll get into later. But that's interesting that that the emperor would call himself the son of God. Um, Here's a quote that, that helps us to understand what's going on here. As far as most of the Roman world was concerned, the divinity of the emperor was obvious and uncontroversial. He and his troops had, after all, conquered the known world. They obviously possessed a power greater than anyone else's. And so Caesar was curios. Caesar was Lord. And to go against that would have been seen as a type of blasphemy and probably politically rebellious. So that the, the early Christians were... There was no separation of church and state in the Roman world. Okay, that was... Or the Jewish world. That was just not... There's no thought to there being some kind of separation. And so when the Romans saw these early Christians... Um, saying, Jesus is Lord, that was not merely a theological statement. It was also very much a political statement, and it was a politically dangerous statement. To acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. So, this Caesar had some weapons at his disposal. Fear, as most totalitarians do. And one of the ways to strike fear in the population was to have a symbol. A symbol that would speak of discipline, punishment, justice. And that symbol was a cross. And to us, crosses are are cool. The Celtic cross looks really nice on our bookmark and our book and on our wall. And and we have different kinds of crosses. um, And we say things like, well, that's a cool cross. Nobody in the ancient world would have thought that at all. The cross was a symbol of punishment and death. So so catch this. Um, If the cross was Caesar's symbol of punishment for rebellious subjects, the fact that the early Christians now, especially Paul, raised up the cross, they are saying... That They're changing, they're taking the symbol of punishment and fear and turning it into a symbol of divine love. That this cross that Caesar as Lord uses to strike fear into the hearts of rebellious subjects, the God of the universe, the real Lord, the curios, takes this cross and says, on this cross, I will sacrifice my son to redeem rebellious subjects, not destroy them. What a powerful, powerful symbol. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord in our day? Because if we say Jesus is Lord or post it on our Facebook page or put it on our church sign or whatever, it's an identification marker probably as some kind of weirdo extremist fundamentalist, but, but it's okay to say that. But what does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord? What, is it, what does it say about us at the core And what are the things that might get in the way of Jesus being Lord? What about the particular temptation that we Christians have to elevate family is Lord? Or what about our culture that elevates political correctness is Lord? Or tolerance? Or some vague notion of niceness? No, to say Jesus is Lord and to mean it and to teach it will not only step on toes it will loudly denounce sinners who are in the hands of an angry God. And yet, those sinners are in the hands of an angry God who has made a way to love those very sinners that he is angry at. And that is the kind of complexity and the kind of beauty that we find when we study God in all His names and in all His attributes. You know, another phrase that we've used over the decades, recently especially, has been, you know, have you made Jesus Lord of your life? And I understand what's being said there. And I understand the desire to have people surrender to Jesus as Lord. But listen, no one makes Jesus Lord. He is Lord. The one who made Him Lord was the Father. And someday every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord. So nobody makes Jesus Lord. He is Lord. He is the Lord. So let's go to Philippians 2, where this comes to the front of our understanding. Philippians chapter 2, because there's something else in Philippians chapter 2 when talking about kurios and Lord that also confronts us in a very special way. So, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is speaking to this church that he he loves dearly, that he helped to start in Philippi, and he's speaking to them and encouraging them, giving them pointers on how to live life in Christ. So in verse 3, Philippians 2, he says to them, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, how do we do this? Is there a model for us? Verse 5 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, theos, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Servants serve a master. Servants serve the kurios, the Lord. So Jesus became a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so this person, Jesus... Messiah, which is the picture of a king, this king Jesus has humbled himself to become a servant and now he's died on a cross. Verse 9, what's the outcome? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's two things that I want to point out there. One is, um, in Isaiah, but Paul is lifting this phrase almost word for word from Isaiah to say that someday, um, every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to Yahweh. Here in Philippians 2, Paul says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Paul is equating Jesus as Yahweh. He's putting them on the same pedestal. He's elevating them to that same point. Without explaining it, he just does it. The assumption in the early church is, yes, Jesus Christ is God. In fact, Jesus Christ is, read the Old Testament, Yahweh himself. Second point here in Philippians 2 is that the lord became a servant to become lord so the lord humbles himself as a servant and then is made or is seen or is elevated as lord the servant of the lord is the lord <laughs> uh, what's going on here? And in the end of Isaiah, we keep talking about this servant of the Lord who's going to come and and, uh, specifically the servant songs and they're all pointing to the Lord Jesus. It's so obvious when we get to the Gospels. And the servant of the Lord actually is the Lord. And that is just a beautiful thing to turn it on its head to see ourselves then as servants of the Lord. And the model... For us servants, is the Lord. So we serve the Lord who's the model of our service. And we are servants of this Lord in order to serve Him as our master. Listen, Jesus is master of your life. Sometimes we lose the significance of the word Lord because we don't really use it anymore. We don't live in the United Kingdom, so there are no lords, right? We we kind of disassociate that. It's just the name for God. But if Jesus is Lord, that means Jesus is master, which means Jesus owns you and me. And since Jesus owns us, then he can put us to work however he wants. However... Jesus also told his disciples, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Like, what do we do with all this? Well, we don't push the metaphors too far so that they exclude the other ones that the Lord uses for us. But the bottom line here is that if there is a kurios, if there is a Lord, then we want to be his servants because this Lord is the kind of Lord you want to serve. This is the kind of Lord who demands, yes, service, but also rewards, service. This God, this Lord, is the one that we want to serve. We want to be servants of this Lord. Romans 6, Paul makes this point that we used to be slaves of righteousness now. uh, We used to be slaves to sin and now we're slaves to righteousness. What a good thing to be a slave to righteousness rather than to sin. Well, I do want to conclude. Um, Eight times in the Old Testament, there's a phrase that goes something like this. Um, You will be my people, or they will be my people, and I will be their God. Um, Elohim. Um, Their God. this, This connection there. Usually God is this overarching, kind of distant picture, but in those phrases, He is our God. He's their God. So eight times in the Old Testament, generally in the promises seen in Jeremiah, there's this picture that he will be their God. They will be his people. You go to the end of your Bible. In fact, go there right now. Revelation 21. So at the very end of the Scriptures, after hearing these promises in the Old Testament, I will be your God. You will be my people. The picture that we see of the eternal state, for those who have put their trust in Jesus, who have repented of their sins, who have turned to Him as their only Savior. This beautiful picture of the bride coming down out of heaven from God, prepared for her husband in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. I think you could argue that a voice from the throne is probably the one seated on the throne. (laughs) Voice from the throne Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And that's the promise of Christianity. That the God can be your God. Eternally so. So, Jesus apparently is back from the dead, but he's got a follower named Thomas who's just not going to go there. You guys were all kind of freaking out and you didn't, who knows, you had a group hallucination or something. Something happened, you convinced the rest that this thing happened. I'm not going to believe it unless I put my hands in the wounds on his body because he's dead. So then eight days later, they're in a room and Jesus shows up. And Thomas falls on his face And what does he say to Jesus? My Lord and my God. My Kurios and my Theos. Jesus does not say, well, hold on a sec. We're going a little too far here. Jesus just accepts the worship. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus, yes, Thomas, that is an accurate statement. And that is the statement that we want to be able to say, my Lord, and my God, so you have an opportunity today, even, even right now, to believe in this Jesus. He is Lord and He is God. The question actually today for you is, is He your Lord and is He your God? And this Jesus is also the one who made a way for that to happen. He stepped in and made a way on the cross, in your place for your sins. He rose from the dead. He conquered Satan, sin, and death. And now he invites you to repent. Stop, stop opposing the Elohim. Stop opposing the God of the universe. Put down your weapons. Surrender, submit to the Lord of the universe. This God, this Lord is knowable. And this God and this Lord wants you to know him pray that today might be the day that you believe. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the scriptures as God and Lord. Pray that you'd help us even um, as we go and read our Bibles this week, that you might um, illuminate for us these different words, that we might see you in the ways that you have revealed yourself to us, the names that you have chosen to reveal yourself through. Lord, I pray this morning that if anybody here is, is questioning, is wondering, is searching or seeking to find out if there is a God and if there is, who is this God? Lord, I pray that they would pick up their Bible that they might talk to me or, or some other person that they know is a Christian who follows Jesus and they might search the Scriptures to see if these things are true. And Lord, that you would save them. Thank you for those in this room who you have wonderfully saved, that we might remember and see that you are God and that you are Lord. And we might live our lives in accordance with that, that you are the creator. And that we need to understand that you have made us and that you are our master. You own us. Lord, that we might submit ourselves to you because not only are you God and Lord, but you are a good and kind God and Lord. You have grace and mercy, mercy overflowing for us so that we might somehow, by the blood of Jesus, approach your throne confidently knowing that you are our God and you are our Lord. So God, work today. And the seeds that have been planted, water Make them grow into eternal life, into discipleship, into growth in Jesus Christ. Go with us as we join together and pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.